welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I was really eager to get back into just talking about what people have been seeing in the course of daily life, such as it is. So for this episode, uh, for the first time, I guess, in uh, about a year or so, I'm very happy to be talking with Rob Sweeney. Uh, Hello, Rob. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Uh, I just want to remind listeners uh, that, of course, you work at Kino Lorber. Uh, how would you describe what you what you do there? I guess technically I'm called uh, Director of Media Production, um, but I work on a lot of uh, DVDs and Blu-rays and producing those and getting those out of the theatrical releases and other titles like that. Uh, my colleague, Frank Tarzi, does the Kino Lorber Studio Classics, which I know a lot of people love. Um, and I work on everything else, basically, that we release on home video. Any things you've released, not to make you choose among your children, but is, what's what's coming out like this week or next week? I didn't work on them, but we have, we're doing all the 4K UHD releases, um, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and for a few dollars mm. more. And those are you know incredible and the, the best those films have ever looked. So I would say that is fantastic. And the ones that I worked on that I'm are pretty great is this Miklos Yangsho collection of six of his films. First time on Blu-ray in uh, the United States, and that's coming out uh, May 10th. Um, and there's also a, a smaller two-disc of The Red and the White and The Roundup. I believe it's April 12th. But um, yeah. I just realized I sort of inadvertently created some synergy with with my uh, last thing I saw, Empire, because I did in fact recommend that Miklos Yangso uh, set. On, on my last uh, newsletter. There you go. You're a man of peerless taste and wisdom. <laughs> so, well, let's get to speaking of peerless taste. I think you uh, first tipped me off to this director, S.S. Rajamuli, and he has a new movie out, and it is called RRR, and we have both seen it. So, yeah, last time I talked to you about a year ago, I was really getting into Rajamuli's work. He's a, a mass market filmmaker. He makes these grand spectacles in a variety of different styles. His last release, Bahubali, two-part spectacular, is more of like in the fantasy realm. But he's also made uh, stuff called Iga, which is a... Uh, a movie about a, a kid who gets killed and he gets reincarnated as a fly and seeks revenge as a fly. Um, and that's more of a kind of a slapstick revenge thriller, which is one of the most creatively hilarious and brilliant movies I've ever seen. And you can go back. He made a wonderful rugby movie called uh, Challenge or C-S-Y-E. And he comes from uh, the Telugu language filmmaking business in India, which is also known as Tollywood, which is based out of Hyderabad. Um, but more and more, he's been reaching for this kind of pan-Indian goal where his films can play all over the entire country. And it's, it's been working like a, a charm. So RRR, you know, he usually films his movies in Telugu and, and simultaneously also in Tamil and sometimes more languages. But I think this one was uh, in Telugu. And this one is about two uh, revolutionaries in pre-independence India, uh, real-life characters who join forces. And this is his imagination and his father's imagination, because um, Rajamuli's father usually contributes the ideas to his films. From what I understand, his dad, who's also a screenwriter, like just throws some ideas constantly. And his son is always, like filtering and then choosing the ones that he really wants to dig into and expand into a feature. Um, and so this one is an imagined 
team up between um, Aluri Sitaramaraju and Komarim Bhim. And they become buddies in Delhi, but they don't tell each other that they're both revolutionaries. They're trying to uh, overthrow the British, uh, British rule. And what's interesting is that they both come from two parts of his home state. Raju Muli was brought up in uh, the home state of Andhra Pradesh in 2014. That region was split up into two separate regions, I guess, for political and economic reasons. I guess there was a, a separatist movement. Um, but these two revolutionaries come from those two parts of his home state. Um, and so him, like having them become buddies again is also his attempt to, you know, rejoin those two parts of Andhra Pradesh back together. Oh, wow. And this is a long prelude to the fact that this is uh, an incredibly entertaining spectacle action movie um, with the most insane stunts and uh, boundary pushing use of CGI kind of like, it's more like animation. Like the there's no, there's no sense that this is uh you know, a real physical reality, but that it pushes things to this beyond that. You know, it, it, it is kind of cartoonish, but not in a, uh, a silly way. It's in a very, very serious, very serious way. I guess I'd put it that way. So yeah, they these two revolutionaries, they team up um, and they their goal of Kamaran Beam is to rescue this girl who was kidnapped from his tribe by this posh uh, British lady and his general. <laughs> Ray Stevenson is the evil... Uh, I, I forget if he's a general, but um, is he the governor? Or something? The governor. No, he's, he's the governor. I think you're right. Um, and his wife is this like preening society lady who kidnaps this girl just to uh, do tattoos at her dinner parties. And so Cameron Beam is trying to get her back. And then Raju's whole goal is to get weapons for his whole hometown. A promise he made to his father in a very moving flashback sequence. Uh, but they don't tell each other their secret goals. They just enjoy each other's company. But then, uh, of course, in the big pre-interval sequence, the truth is revealed and then things spin off from there. It's just incredibly entertaining. And the action sequences are kind of beyond belief uh, in many ways. Yeah. I mean, first, I, w- I want to just note that the way that they become friends, they <laughs> the way they meet cute uh, is by by rescuing a child who is surrounded by like burning oil. An exploding train. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't mention this part, but they're both of the characters are identified with water and fire throughout. They're introduced that way. Like beam is uh, fire and Raju is uh, water. And in the opening sequence, there's an exploding train and all the burning bits are in the water. And so the two of them, they just meet for the first time. They both decide to rescue this kid um, fire and water and the, it ends with them joining like clasping forearms <laughs> and that's yes. after they save him and that's the joining of the fire and water so they're brief uh and that like that imagery continues i love that sequence like many of the other sequences it's true it, it's, it's cartoonish it's not like elastic cartoons because i don't know this is almost something i want to drill down on a little somehow because the way that this movie moves people around it does so with like this kind of uncanny combination of sort of slow motion and then obviously just a ton of like cgi enhancement and moving around and there's this crazy message at the that came up before uh, before the movie that says like don't worry no animals were harmed mm-hmm. every single animal is cgi and then it gives a list of all the animals in the movie which includes like 
tigers, oxen, wolves, birds, uh, and you know, and later on, you at one point, I think like a tiger collides with a wolf midair, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like, oh, I'm glad they told us that was CGI. Um, I wouldn't have guessed that they didn't get an actual t- tiger to collide with a wolf. <laughs> But I think this is part of what makes the movie so intense and so so unreal is is that particular quality of of the action um, where everything is so heightened. Yet, like you get to linger over, you know, people flying through the air, and it's not just like one or two scenes. It's the way just about every other piece of action is is staged. Uh, you know, it kind of messes with my mind in, in, in a great way because you really live in this bizarre split second heat of the moment. Um, it's not like the slow-mo of like a smooth slow-mo either. It's a bit of a stepped slow-mo. So there's that as well to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like high frame rate, even if it's not. not. Mm. Um, and it, it has this immersive quality. And I think that's why he's been compared to James Cameron a lot. And that, mm. I mean, his movies at this point, Raja Mouli and Cameron, they're basically animated films with some real people in it. Um, yeah. And I think they've both gotten to that point and they, they're both, you know, pushing uh, VFX forward in, in different ways. Obviously, Cameron has way more money at, at hand. I did uh, an interview with Makuta VFX, who Raja Mouli has been working with since uh, Magadira in 2009, which is like his breakout film at the the box office and was a big movie for um, Ram Charan, who plays Raju in Triple R. The other thing is that these two actors uh, who are in huge superstars, both in their own rights, uh, Junior NTR, um, whose you know, dad was also a big star, and Ram Charan. Um, it's unusual that they're both in this movie because in terms of the way the Indian films usually work is you have one big hero and the, in the big blockbusters, you have one big hero, you have uh, one big composer, you have one big director, and that's how you sell the movie. And you don't often have many multiple stars in one film, probably maybe for budgetary reasons, but also for, I saw an interview with junior and TR where said, it's just the ego of the actor sometimes doesn't allow it. And so that's another unusual thing about this is that, I mean, I saw this one in Times Square um, with a, not a huge audience, but a vocal one. And they were clearly partisans for uh, Junior NTR. And they were like hooting and hollering and screaming every time he came on screen. And uh, this movie is fascinating in how it kind of breaks them up, has them, puts them up against each other. And the fact that they're both, um, I guess they call it a multi-star, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and Rajamouli, even though he's this hugely successful director, he's always pushing against the formula, you know, which he did in Ega as well, which doesn't have a star. Well, they kill off the star that it has, they kill off within the first 30 minutes and that it's just uh, a fly is <laughs> the main star. Of that movie. <laughs> and it became an enormous hit, even though it didn't have this big star at its center. Um, I think I've gotten way off track, but in terms of the, the action, <laughs> Yeah, I think the action is, it kind of has this immersive quality. You know, it's kind of uh, uh, Avatar-esque in that way. It kind of invites you into this world that has, even though it invents its own rules of physics, it brings you in in that same kind of 3D way, even if it's not technically 3D, even though it was released in 3D and uh, some other markets. I don't. It wasn't shot that way, though. It's really interesting to hear about the the way how unusual it is having uh, 
two mega stars like that. I mean, that's such a huge source of tension that fuels the movie that the characters they play are at some point going to find out, find out each other's true identity and all hell will break loose. I mean, they have this almost like apocalyptic opening sequence where he basically single-handedly defends like a British garrison of some sort. You mean Raju? The, yeah. yeah, that sequence is incredible. Yeah, it's a kind of chilling sequence as well because he's fighting it off on behalf of the British command there, mm-hmm. which involves mowing down all the Indians who are coming up, uh, pushing against the fence. And, and it's just... Uh, I haven't really seen uh, a scene like that because it just goes on and on and on. You know, he just tunnels into the crowd and Mm -hmm. constantly is resurrecting himself uh, just when you think he's beaten down. Um, And I mean, you know that that's inside that character for the rest of the movie, that that kind of possibility. Uh, So it's like this time bomb of force. (laughs) Uh, So that, that adds a lot to the tension. It's totally brutal. He's so brutal that he scares the British officer, like his commanding officer is, is afraid yeah. of him, kind of, because he shows this unthinking, like sociopathic kind of beating of his own people, you know, and that's hard. And can you square that with future revelations? You know, I guess <laughs> it's like somebody who's deep undercover. A spoil- I mean, yes. spoiler alert, he might not be a, a sociopath. <laughs> But yeah, that sequence is incredible because yeah, that one is not as that one's more down and dirty and gritty and grimy and uh, like yeah, thuddingly violent instead of the kind of you know sleeker stuff that comes after. And uh, yeah, and like it, it goes from these like bird's eye views of these massing crowds of thousands, and then into like inside like inside the crowds where all you see are like hands and fists like bisecting the frame. Um, and that kind of, you know, perspectival shift is really impactful, at least in that sequence. And it kind of reminded me, I just watched Sea Challenge, which is a rugby movie. <laughs> these boring, it's it's pretty silly. Like it's a school <laughs> movie where these, uh, the, the arts people and the science people each have rugby teams and they like had gangs and they like fight each other. Anyway, but there's one, uh, and then they both team up against a local mobster. But there's sequences where it's like in the rugby, uh, I don't know, I forget the term, when the, the both sides, like they they lock up, you know? The scrum? The scrum. The scrum. Yeah, that's because when they lock up in the scrum, there's a similar thing where you, he puts the camera like inside of the scrum and you're kind of, it kind of reminded me of that shot in, uh, in Triple R where they're, you know, he's with the mob, uh, that kind of like intimate kind of, uh, you're getting just snippets of the violence that's occurring all around him. Well, this is really crazy because I happen to have just watched Accident, the Joseph Losey uh, movie. Okay. And at one, at one point they play some version of rugby, like inside one of the houses in Oxford or Cambridge, wherever it is, that has that similar shot. Oh, so, wow. Uh, this is very odd. Maybe he's a Losey fan. I don't know. All I know, all I know for sure is <clears throat> I talked to Pete, Pete Draper, who who worked with Rajamuli for years. He says uh, oh, yeah. that Rajamuli loves dirty, rotten scoundrels. It's one of his favorites. So that's <laughs> my my only insight into his uh, taste. That's really great, and it's somehow appropriate because the depiction of the uh, aristocrats <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, the governor's wife is even worse than than the governor. She like really just literally bloodthirsty. You know, there's one sequence where a certain whip is not enough so she says why don't you use my whip and it's like a 
spiked whip that'll draw more blood. Oh yeah, just bloodthirsty. Yeah. By the end of the movie, and even in the song over the credits, like there is really a strong, like kind of, is nationalistic a fair word for it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Feel for it. I mean, even the, the kind of statue visuals they have in the credits reminded me more of like a Soviet constructivist statue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There, it's a real like rally, the, the credit song. It's a real rallying credit song where they go region by region. Different revolutionary figures. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, he really wants to be a pan-Indian filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and then that becomes clear, definitely. And he's and he shows up at the end of that big dance number at the end. Yeah. He's, you know, he's almost as big of a star as his uh, actors now when he shows up at the end all smiling. I know he is especially concerned with using Indian stories and not using Western templates for stories. Like he mm-hmm. talks over and over again about using the Ramayana and the Mahabharata as as sources, maybe not as literal sources, but as you know, things he can adapt and incorporate into his work. And one of his dreams has been to make the uh, straight adaptation of the Mahabharata. We talked about that for years. He also talks about um, this comic book series that he loved as a kid that really influenced him. And it kind of sounds like like a classic comics it like reworks local folklore and mythology into comic book form that's called amar chitra katha comics and i think they're still in print Um, but he said he read those when he was like seven years old so yeah there's this very strong he wants to incorporate indian history indian mythology into this you know blockbuster movie storytelling format it's like uh, yeah. Indian history, Indian mythology filtered through um, like his dad um, telling him these like kind of bedtime stories because Iga and Bahubali both have this like certain points, a voiceover of a kid asking his dad to tell him a story. And so there's mm. that kind of uh, aspect to it as well. I, I really love hearing about this partnership uh, between him and his and his father, and because there is such a wild freedom to the to the tales that that are 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 in the movie, just the individual sequences. You know, you can you can imagine they're you know they're almost as much fun to talk about and tell recount to someone as, oh, yeah. as they are to watch. You know, I mean, this battle royale that happens at the governor's palace, mm-hmm. which opens you know in a way that I almost don't want to give away because when it happened. Like, first you just see a truck coming up, and I'm thinking, oh, mm-hmm. what's going to happen with a truck, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, just suffice to say, because they have CGI, they can just go for it. And it's this wonderful spectacle of just mayhem that, that erupts where mm-hmm. there's, there's action. There's, like, action happening in the foreground, you know, usually – couple of people fighting but there's also all this stuff just happening in the background sometimes it's everywhere yeah it's uh, yeah it's incredible it's the incredible level of detail in the in the action yeah. design and in the visual effects it's really yeah and roger Mulley is also known for these awesome action scenes that peak right before the interval or the intermission um and this is one of the you know the best it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah we don't want to you don't want to spoil it too much but you know you should just go see it it's incredible yeah and one other one i just want to single out because it is kind of because it is a musical number but it has mm-hmm. the force of an action scene oh yeah the musical number where it's a dance-off mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. it's you know it's like just like a dance-a-thon where they they challenge this you know this british fop 
<laughs> yes, this disgusting British fop who is trying to humiliate them. Yes, he's trying to humiliate them by saying, "No, oh, do you know this? Like the the flamenco and the tango. <laughs> you know, he, they don't know these other kinds of dances." And he's trying to humiliate them, and then uh, yeah, then Raju goes up to the drum set and starts playing this like super fast rhythm, polyrhythmic thing, and they they roar into this. Uh, not to not to dance and this is one of the things that was on they threw on youtube i think and so the fans at least in the crowd i saw would start flipping out when they started playing that song um yeah and so yeah and they start dancing it turns into a a marathon of who can outlast the other one doing this dance where you're basically it's just like insanely fast uh, stamping your feet into the ground you know who, who can do it the longest so like the guys are all pissed off and the, the british women just want to know the moves like they've just enjoyed, yeah yeah they're just enjoying the dance um it's really like a thrilling fun sequence just like it's really a joyful kind of sequence like yeah. any, you know the best of what you want out of a musical you know just this velocity joy physical movement and just the way the dance interacts with the earth because it's bringing up all the dust and dirt off the ground and you get yeah. the the joy of like uh uh you know you know the rich kids in a, a college movie getting their comeuppance you know like <laughs> these are basic joys that films you know should deliver more often and this one <laughs> delivers a hundred different things in each scene so but yeah the musical sequence is, is awesome yeah no that's that's a great one well we can leave it there and leave the rest uh leave it all for people to discover because i mean it's also just worth noting that this is not a movie that's like is dropped into a single theater um you know which on occasion you know at least earlier in my whatever writing career i remember that would sometimes happen with Mm -hmm. indian imports um yeah i mean this has been distributed across the country yeah i mean over a thousand theaters i think a lot of these movies claim it's the widest release in us ever when like these things come out but it's at least if it's not the most widest distributed it's one of them so yeah i would definitely check a theater near you um i just want to put this one last note just because it was in my head uh, when you talked about is how his dad is contributing a lot to the of the ideas that are later turned into scripts. Like the, his movies are family affairs. Um, his wife is the costume designer. His cousin uh, Kiravani is the composer. And uh, when I talked to the VFX guy Pete Draper, it's like when you work on his film, like you go over to his house, you have tea with his family, like you become part of the family. Like the it is the family business. So like when you work on this movie. You know, you're part of the Rajamuli family for as long as that <laughs> production is ongoing. So it's just a completely different way, you know, production style. And I've seen him say that somebody asked him if he wants to work in Hollywood. He's like, no, <laughs> like, I don't think I could. I don't think I could work like that. You know, so. Right. That's great. That that's where the question of like, yeah, why would you? Why would you go to Hollywood? You know, the the things he he's making like the energy of the scene, like that dance sequence, or yeah, even that like wolf chase sequence that happens in the jungle like mm-hmm. i don't know i just got so much more pleasure out of watching those things than any number of hollywood studio stuff um all, you know all that being said it is a three-hour movie with mm-hmm. certain longers um mm-hmm. but that's just part of the for- format how dare you <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> so well so that's rrr which remind me again what does it stand for rrr i got it i believe it's rise roar revolt all of that occurs at some point in the film. Yeah, yeah. 
the rising the roaring and the revolting yeah rise roar revolt that's right that, that should be part of the title i think that might be rrr might be a little cryptic um, <laughs> it's doing fine they <laughs> it's doing fine it's making a lot of money yeah <laughs> although next time they should they should consult you i think yeah that's right a title consultant <laughs> have you considered all the james benning fans who might be confused and disappointed uh, when they go in um then and actually speaking of uh, experimental uh, filmmakers like James Benning. <laughs> that was one other movie I wanted to hear about uh, that yet you've seen in the past, uh, in the recent history. Do you want to talk about Inner Outer Space? Yeah. Um, so this is the new film uh, directed by Lida Lertundi. Uh, I saw it at MoMA. I think it was a documentary fortnight uh, from this year. She's a filmmaker I try to keep up with as much as possible. I mean, um, first of all, they're all like 15 minutes long. That makes it easy. Um, and she has this incredible sense of, and I guess the title kind of gets into it a little bit, but, um, you know, exteriorizing inner, inner states. And this one, she just moved because she uh, lived in, you know, California for a long time. And she recently moved back home to the Basque country. And so, uh, and this was shot also during the pandemic. So she's trying to reconnect with the landscape of her country. Um, after being away for a while, while also doing it while on lockdown. And so it has all these different sequences. One of them, she um, um, reconstructs like title screens from this kid's show that her kid watches on TV. Um, one of them, she projects like an image of the uh, waves on a, on, a, on a wall with some of her collaborators, like, you know, standing in front of it, uh, pretending to they're swimming. Um, another one, two women are speaking and they're subtitled, but you don't hear their voices. So um, it's all about trying to connect with this landscape you've been a part of, apart from for so long, but having this distance and these layers and being, you know, that stand between you and your home. And I thought it was like, as all of her works are, they're like these incredibly compressed things that take a long time to sink in and think about. I, I was thought it was quite lovely. Yeah, I've always liked her movies. I, I haven't seen this one, um, um, so I hope to ca- catch up with it. Um, and now I wasn't crazy because I just looked up the title "Flips a Warhol" uh, title, "Outer and Inner Space." Oh, there you um, go. Anyway, this sounds really good. I hope it in some way people are able to see it. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, a lot of a lot of her other stuff is streaming on Mubi, I think, still. Um, so yeah. if you have. If you have that, check them out. And all of her movies always have one like awesome song, like some old soul, <laughs> soul track uh, that you've never heard of, or at least I haven't. And uh, that's great. <laughs> so added bonus. Yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure that we got that that one in there. Then you also mentioned as another uh, kind of change of pace, uh, a kind of classic Hollywood era film that you saw. It's a it's a Leo McCary film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was. Part-Time Wife from 1930. This was part of the Dames, Janes, Dolls, and Canaries, uh, Women Stars of the Pre-Code Era series that was at MoMA that Farron Smith Neming programmed. And I wanted to see so many, but this was the only one I could get to. And Leo McCary is a a favorite of mine. And I had never seen this one before. And it was uh, a 35 millimeter print from UCLA. Um, It's like, it's super funny. And it's clearly a precursor to... uh, 
awful truth and it's a comedy of remarriage in which in which this couple uh the wife is a famous golfer and the husband is uh he like works in some boring business job i forget and he's always like uh, jealous of his wife going out and having fun and he gets jealous of one of her like golf partners and so she leaves him um, because of his uh, incessant jealousy and so he starts to learn how to play golf as a way to reconnect with her um, and it's it's really sexy and it's really entertaining and funny and there's a little kid who lives under the bridge with, with a, a stray dog who may or may not get gassed in a gas chamber it's a oh my God. it's a horrifying a horrifying subplot but um and this is all packed into uh you know 67 minutes um, and if you like McCary, if you like screwball comedy, I think it's definitely a key precursor to um, the awful truth and that whole cycle. Like everything, everything is in there. Um, so I was really thrilled to see that and see how in place a lot of these little elements were. It stars Leela Hyams and Edmund Lowe. Um, and Edmund Lowe is really funny. And Leela Hyams is great. It's very effervescent in performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those more buttoned up, you know, and he has to loosen up a bit. It's like the, <laughs> the arc arc of the movie there. Yeah. Um, there is a, a missing reel, which is why it's a little shorter. But oh. it, it didn't affect my enjoyment. There is reel two is missing. Yeah. From nitrate deterioration. Yeah. Reel two. That's so interesting. Yeah. So there is a moment you're like, what? <laughs> Wait, we missed something. And you did. But um, so I just remember that now. But yeah, that's why it's a little shorter than usual. Um, oh, okay. If you do see it, just keep that in mind. <laughs> see, I was about to sing the praises of when movies used to be 66 minutes. In this case, it was longer. It was, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, bummer. Freaking uh, nitrate deterioration ate it, ate it up, apparently. Well, we can look for it. Maybe it'll pop up in a, a Bill Morrison movie at some point. Um, <laughs> um, Absolutely. Hey, I've worked on his uh, DVD and Blu-ray of his last couple of films. Oh, I haven't seen. Yeah, I haven't. I've missed the last couple ones. Village Detective. Um, and there's also a number of his shorts on that uh, on that Blu-ray that's out now. Okay, cool. And the Village Detective that, yeah, this fishing boat discovered uh, this old Russian, this guy who was a huge in, in Russian films, Mikhail Zarov, uh, who Gus is forgotten now. And it's like kind of an investigation of this forgotten star of Russian cinema. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's kept on kind of plowing at this inexhaustible territory of, I don't know, historical and then like meta space. The story is in and around what he uncovers. It's, it's kind of amazing. And forgive me. Uh, for more plugging here, but the, they're both <laughs> Dawson City, Frozen Time, and The Village Detective. They're both included in this sale that's ongoing right now. So they're like ten bucks. Oh, I love, <laughs> I love. No, by all means, I, I, I love talking about Dawson City. That movie, it's like one of my favorite historical just journeys that you just never know what's around the corner next. And it's a movie where it, it wormholes through American and Canadian history in this way that, like. Trump's ancestors actually <laughs> mm-hmm. um, pop up in it at one point. Um, not even that highlighted because I think when this was made, when it was made, thankfully he at least was, was not where he would be. That movie is, yeah, it's like if, well, whatever. I was about to diss Ken Burns, so what's the point? 
<laughs> Ken, Ken, Burns, <laughs> Ken Burns serves his purpose. I love the, the country music. No, I know. That's why I stopped music. myself. I'll cut this all out. This, this trash talk is just for your benefit. Right? No, keep it in. Keep The people need to know your true thoughts. <laughs> um, no, for the record, I, I, I actually do like Ken Burns movies. I like his movie, Brooklyn Bridge, which I think was his mm-hmm. first one. I talked to him about that, and he was wonderful to talk to. And he told a great story about how getting the funding for that, it was like a case study and how funding has changed. Because he said he got it somehow from the city, and he just went to some office in Brooklyn, and a guy like handed him a bag with some money or oh checks my gosh. or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was a kind of wow. funny history of PBS. Um, Incredible. There was one more movie. I don't know if you want to quickly mention it because it did sound like it was it was fun. So if people would want to want to track it down. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. This just uh, started streaming. I think on Friday. It's a documentary called Kung Fu Stuntmen. It's streaming on Haya, which is a streaming service that's pretty cheap. I think it's like $5 a month. Um, and it's, yeah, it interviews stuntmen in Hong Kong and China and uh, the, from the Sammo Hung stunt team, from the Jackie Chan stunt team, and who worked with Bruce Lee, um, all about their careers and the, the physical danger they're put in, like how they were not insured. <laughs> I mean, and also kind of the genesis of a lot of the crazy stunts they did. Um, I guess, you know, people didn't want to work if there was a job and it was, they found out that it was a Sammo Hung production. A lot of the stuntmen would just say, no, thank you, because it was, they knew it would be probably more dangerous than they would want it to do. And yeah, and they, they interview Sammo Hung, they interview like Andrew Lau, who I guess was a cinematographer on that before he uh, became a, a director. Lots of amazing people and crazy stories um, and really gives you a sense of, you know, what it was like at that time to work on these films, the danger, the, uh, you know, the pride and uh, all that. And it was really, fasc- mm. really fascinating. And one of the guys took a tour in, in contemporary Hong Kong of where, you know, Golden Harvest Studios used to be and where like the major Shaw studios used to be. Um, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. So um, mm. yeah, I, I give it a shot if you're interested in that uh, period of cinema, which you should be I, for God's sake. Yes. And that's before, I guess, wire work or. No, it's like, it covers the period from before and through, and, and they talk a little bit about wire work and, you know, some, oh, people, interesting. some, some people were paralyzed, you know, um, using those oh. wires. Cause if you're like, use it inappropriately and you get like that kind of whiplash. Um, yeah. So they, they talk about all that stuff. Um, oh my God. I had no idea. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's why we use CGI now. <laughs> <laughs> partly. Yeah. Partly it's really helped. And uh, also kind of depending on its usage made movies way worse. Depends on <laughs> what you're going for. <laughs> yeah. No, but after like the, the great CGI of, uh, of triple R, I can't, I can't, I can't bag it too much. But then you watch all these clips from Kung Fu Stuntmen, and you're like, man, <laughs> action movies today can't hold a candle to this stuff. Yeah, that's definitely another, just another level of uh, commitment entirely. But morally, <laughs> maybe it's, you know, they should not. I'm glad they're not killing themselves anymore to do these. True. <laughs> yeah. True. This podcast does not con- condone the. Unsafe uh, stunts, yes. Unsafe stunts. <laughs> All right. That's just called Kung Fu Stuntman. Kung Fu Stuntman. That's right. Yeah, it's on Haya. 
you can probably get like a free week preview if you just if that's the only thing you want to watch. Yes. Well, so I guess that that might bring us to to the end of the episode. I just want to contribute one of my recent viewing, just to throw that into into the arena. Um, and speaking of whiplash, another whiplash turn. I just want to mention this movie from the Kanuyo Tanaka series retrospective, uh, which is at the Film Society. Uh, the film is Love Letter. And she, of course, is this actress who has her work as a director has been reappreciated or appreciated and rediscovered. And this particular movie is a post-war kind of just about this real, just kind of a sad sack who has not recovered from the war and from a, a romance with a childhood sweetheart and just seems to have condemned himself somehow. Uh, and he's in this like super tragic, uh, super on point position of writing love letters for other people. You know, he on commission will write someone a letter. And a lot of these are like letters to American GIs uh, by uh, young women who are trying to stay in touch. The movie, it's pretty devastating. I have to say, like on a filmmaking level, it's it's gorgeously put together in terms of the way she finds to express really complicated emotions in terms of camera work is, is really remarkable. There's, you know, there's one scene where he is sort of reunited on a train station platform and, you know, they have him and his former sweetheart in the same shot. Uh, and then instead of sort of sticking with them, the camera stays in the train. So the doors close on them and then the, ca- the camera kind of pulls away. It's this uh, just kind of turbulent emotional moment where you see them together, um, but and you also have this feeling of, of movement and of time with the train there. Um, but you ultimately, it's not like a joyous reunion that just stays there on that space with them. Um, and all this through just the choice of where you're going to keep the camera for, for that shot. And I don't know, and then there she has a great eye for uh, locations, I thought, as well, and finding a lot of evocative places that I at least, you know, not so familiar with. Um, also lots of print media. They seem to have some sort of, or his brother has some sort of racket where he's like a used uh, bookstore hustler of some sort, which uh, is a nice bit of uh, carry detail, <laughs> I guess you'd say. But that's Love Letter. It sounds sounds lovely. Um, it kind of reminded me of uh, Love Letters, the, the, Willie, the William Dieterle film with Jennifer Jones and Joseph oh, Cotton. Because yeah. in that one, Joseph Cotton is writing letters for his soldier buddy who can't really write back to his love interest at home. And then so Joseph Cotton then falls in love with uh, his buddy's girlfriend because of it. So, you know, not uh, the same but it's like very, it's a very moving uh, melodrama. So I don't know, that reminded me of that. I like how what the, the Dieterly result is that he falls in love with <laughs> But mm-hmm. the, the result in this movie is he's just shrouded in this, in this sadness. Oh my gosh. So that's Love Letter. And I think that'll bring us to the end of our, our tour. Rob, a pleasure as always. I'm glad to be of service. And um, I will have uh, an article on Triple R and Rajamuli uh, coming out via Film Comet uh, at some point. And I have an interview with Pete Draper of Makuta VFX, who's worked on Rajamuli films since Magadira in 2009. That should be up at Filmmaker Magazine at some point. There you go. All right, we'll sign off there uh, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, same to you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. 
Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.